Just before we begin today's episode, I'm really excited to let you know we now have a Cold Case Detective Discord. It's a place to chat over cases with me and the rest of the team directly, hang out with other true crime fans, get behind the scenes pictures and updates, take part in live Q&As with me where I'll try and answer anything you might want to know, or even just to hang out and talk about anything. YouTube's been increasingly weird about comments on true crime channels lately, and even started blocking comments on some of our videos without us having any say in the matter. So the Discord is also a great way to make sure that whatever happens, we will always have a place to share our thoughts, theories, and reactions together. Just follow the pinned link in the comments to join in. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see you there. Now, let's get on with the video. According to the FBI's National Crime Information Center, as of December 2019, there were over 87,000 active missing persons records, and their Uniform Crime Report estimates that the United States had, as of 2019, around 250,000 unsolved murders. This number increases by about 6,000 each year. Looking at these incredible figures, it's sad to think that the attention is so often exclusively given to a select group of cold cases time and time again. Because, of course, no case should slip through the cracks. No case deserves to be forgotten about. But sadly, many are. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll aim to shed light on three cold cases you've probably never heard of. Lila Portress. The story of 28-year-old Lila Portress starts on June 27th, 1977, when she was last seen at her home on Cynthia Avenue in Tiverton, Rhode Island. An employee of an insurance company in Fall River, Massachusetts, she did not show up to her work for several days, and her car remained in her drive for an unusually long time. Two days later, on June 29th, a suspicious neighbor asked her husband to check on the young woman. Her front door was locked, but notably, her porch light was on, even though it was the middle of the day. Still concerned for her safety, her neighbors alerted the local police department. Inside, Lila's TV was on, as were all her lights. Her pet cats appeared to be home alone. Police found her purse, ID, glasses, and contact lenses, causing them to suspect that she'd fallen victim to foul play. There were no signs of a struggle, so they worked on the theory that she left with someone she knew, with the intention of returning home. The only thing missing from the house was a set of spare keys. A few weeks later, on July 13th, 1977, workers found the 28-year-old's body in a wooded area near William S. Canning Boulevard in Fall River, Massachusetts. She was specifically located in a thick underbrush, around 40 feet from the road. The route between her house and the woods was only about three miles long. Lila had been shot to death with a small caliber weapon like that which is often used in hits or execution-style killings. 
Authorities determined that she had been killed elsewhere and then dumped in the woods. Lila was found fully clothed, but it could not be determined whether or not she was sexually assaulted due to the state of decomposition. The spare set of keys which were missing from the home were found on her person. When the case went public, a neighbor came forward to state that they heard screams emanating from her house at around 3 a.m. on the night of the 27th. Investigators also discovered that the last person to see her alive was her boyfriend, who claimed that he had left the house at around 12 a.m. that night. Over the next year, the police and FBI followed up hundreds of leads and interviewed over 100 people. Several persons of interest were identified, but no one was ever charged in relation to Lila's slaying. Given that her case received tragically little media coverage, there isn't much known about the investigation following her demise, nor her background. What we do know for certain is that Lila moved to Rhode Island in 1972 after marrying a man named William J. Souza. The couple bought a house together, but divorced three years later. At the time of her passing, Lila had plans to take time off work and head to her home state of Maine, where her father still lived, working as an engineer. There are many wild theories being speculated upon in relation to Lila's case, although most of them cannot be substantiated. According to local gossip, there was a rumor among the 28-year-old's co-workers that she was having an affair with a police officer. It is unknown whether any officers were questioned in relation to the case, or whether there is any truth at all to this allegation. It's also been suggested that perhaps Lila stumbled across something suspicious at her job, while others have pointed to the tidy way in which she was executed and dumped. This, combined with the small weapon caliber, have made many wonder if she was subject to some kind of hit. However, Lila was described as an extrovert with lots of friends and a passion for stray animals. It seems extremely odd to think that she could have become muddled up in some criminal activity, although it isn't out of the realm of possibility. In 2019, Lila's case was featured on a pack of cold case playing cards that were distributed to prisons nationwide. Her case, now over four decades old, still goes unsolved although detectives working the case say they are close to finding an answer. Anyone with any information on Lila's case can contact the Riverton PD at 401-625-6717. Michelle Norris. On May 26th, 1988, seven-year-old Michelle Norris went to the playground of Captain G. Harold Hunt Elementary School in Central Falls, Rhode Island. She attended first grade there and wanted to go and play with her brothers. Her mother, Julia, stayed behind to rest due to a kidney infection she was suffering from at the time. Following their parents' separation, the children were staying with their mother at their grandmother's house. One of the windows of the home looked straight out onto the playground. Before she left, Michelle asked her mother if she wanted any Tylenol, but Julia told her she was fine. The seven-year-old told her mother she loved her, said goodbye, and left. This was the last time Julia ever saw her daughter. At the playground, none of Michelle's brothers saw anything suspicious. According to Julia, her daughter wouldn't go off with a stranger without a fight. She believes that whoever took Michelle must have been someone she was familiar with. She was last seen between 6 and 7 p.m. that evening. 
Naturally, a search party immediately formed, but it wouldn't be for a few days until volunteer searchers found the seven-year-old deceased and unclothed less than half a mile from where she was last seen, on the side of the hill behind the dance hall on Brook Street. Her pink t-shirt and purple shorts were neatly folded next to her body. The area had been searched just the day prior by her father, William. Medical examiner Kristen Sweeney performed the autopsy and discovered that Michelle's end was violent. She'd been beaten and sexually assaulted before being forced into the soil and suffocated. Her body sported numerous cuts and bruises, which she'd sustained from trying to fight off her abuser. Forensic testing, however, found that the soil Michelle had inhaled did not match that of the dump site, suggesting that she'd been slain elsewhere. This vile attack on a little girl sent shockwaves throughout the city. Parents held their children tighter and became wary of letting them out of their sight. Although several people were questioned during the initial investigation into Michelle's demise, leads were quick to dry up. Several years later, the police chief of Central Falls at the time told a reporter with Providence Journal that he believed a local resident was responsible for the abduction and homicide. This unnamed suspect has never been taken into custody, however, due to a lack of evidence. It has baffled investigators and online sleuths alike that Michelle did not scream or run away, adding credence to the thought that she must have known whoever took her. However, it still seems unusual there were no witnesses to the crime or its aftermath. Did the abductor live nearby? How did they get away from the playground with Michelle? There are so many questions and so few answers. There is one publicly known suspect in the case. He is possibly the one who investigators are interested in. According to the investigation discovery show, Breaking Homicide, Michelle's best friend's stepdad faced criminal charges for molesting his stepdaughter. He reportedly lived within blocks of the playgrounds. However, he has never been charged with Michelle's abduction. Like Lila's case in recent years, Michelle's slaying has been featured on playing cards distributed to prisoners. Investigators hope that it will bring the break in the case that they need. Her mother, Julia, now lives in Massachusetts and has seven grandchildren. After Michelle's passing, the children's friend and service agency in Rhode Island set up the Michelle Norris Memorial Reward to remember her. It's awarded each year to an individual or organization that provides extraordinary support and assistance in improving the futures of the state's most vulnerable children. Sadly, Michelle's case has largely gone cold in recent years. If you have any information, you can contact the Rhode Island State Police at 401-444-1046. Mary Moroni. Born May 9th, 1928, Mary Agnes Moroni was the light of her parents' life. Michael and Catherine Moroni married young. Catherine was 13, and by the time she was 17, the couple had two daughters, Mary, who was two, and Anastasia, who was 11 months. The couple lived at 5200 Wentworth Avenue in Chicago, Illinois, and were very poor. Michael made around $15 a week, which is the modern equivalent of around $224 today. 
A relative of Catherine's wrote to the Needy Family Services, a newspaper column in which people could request financial assistance, and a paragraph documenting their plight was printed. The service didn't normally print addresses, but due to a mistake, the address of the couple was learned by a woman who decided to use this opportunity to her advantage. On May 14th, 1930, an unidentified woman came to the door of the family home. There are two variations commonly reported about what exactly the woman told Catherine. The first is that she was a social worker who'd been sent to examine their case, while the other was that she'd been sent on behalf of a social worker named Mrs. Henderson. She was described as a well-dressed young woman around the age of 22 with protruding teeth and a cultured voice. She claimed that her name was Julia Otis, and she provided the couple with some basic groceries free of charge. After listening to the couple's problems, Julia asked if she could take Mary away with her to California on a temporary basis. She explained that on her return, Mary would be unrecognizable and, quote, fat as a butterball. Catherine refused the offer, however. Julia left the couple $12 and promised to return. Right on cue, the following day, Julia came back. This time, she had baby clothes, as Catherine was seven months pregnant with the couple's third child. The young woman said she had arranged for Michael to get a better job, and this time offered to take Mary shopping for clothes and shoes at a nearby store. Eventually, Catherine agreed. Mary reportedly cried and refused to go, but was taken anyway. Neither Mary nor Julia Otis ever came back. The next day, the Moronis received a letter from the mysterious woman. It read as follows. Please don't be alarmed. I have taken your little girl to California with me. I have hired a special nurse to care for her. We'll be back in two months. By that time, you will be on your feet again and will be able to care for her. She didn't even cry a bit. She's outfitted like a princess. In the meantime, I'll help all I can to get you on your feet. Don't worry about her or anything else. When you get this letter, we'll be on our way already. As ever, Julia Otis. The letter was written on stationery from a Chicago store, and witnesses believed they saw Julia with Mary as she dictated the note to a store employee. She also apparently paid for Mary's clothing with a $50 note, which was a lot of money during this time period. This has led to much online speculation that she was a member of a black market adoption ring. The letter did not help put the couple at ease, and despite the promises that Julia made, Michael and Catherine never saw their eldest daughter again. This was also the last time Julia ever contacted the family, and she did nothing to provide them with further aid. Two weeks later, a woman named Alice Henderson sent a letter to the couple claiming that Julia was her cousin and she was love-hungry from losing her husband and baby the year before. She added that their baby would be returned to them safe and sound. However, as with Julia, Alice was never heard from again. Authorities noted that both of the letter writers shared the same handwriting. Leads in the investigation were sparse. In July of 1931, an elderly Native American woman named Martha Thompson was found pushing a cart which contained a blonde-haired, blue-eyed three-year-old girl matching Mary's description. Martha claimed that the girl was abandoned by her mother, a woman named Florence Fuller, and begged to be allowed to keep her. 
Although investigators were initially optimistic, the Moronis did not identify the little girl as their missing daughter. Then in 1952, a 24-year-old housewife from California came forward believing that she could be the missing Moroni child, as her husband had noticed similarities between the two. Mary McKelland had been adopted by Charles and Nova Beck in 1930. She had similar teeth, body and skull measurements, blood type and prints to the Moronis, but she had no scar from an operation that Mary had received when she was younger. The reunion between Mary and her possible family was highly publicized. Catherine and Michael accepted her as theirs, but testing carried out after Mary passed away in 2005 proved that she wasn't Mary Moroni. Michael and Catherine Moroni went on to have six more children after Mary's disappearance, one sister and five brothers, but nothing could fill the void that their first child left behind. It's been 90 years since Mary Moroni went missing and her whereabouts still remain unknown. Although it seems unlikely that we will ever see a resolution to this case, we must hold out hope that one day, a small piece of evidence will be found that will shed light on the mystery of Mary Moroni. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and speculations. And remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective Podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.